our in-person crew. Welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. It's great to see you guys. Recording in progress. There you go. I guess we're recording in progress. Um, okay, so welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. I want to share with you an idea that I've shared many times before. Um, and it's a Chabad idea. It goes back all the way to the founder of Chabad, the Alter Rebbe, the founder of the Chabad Hasidic movement, Rabbi Shneir Zaman of Liadi. He once walked in to his students to the, in the study hall, and he made an announcement. He said, in Yiddish, medarf leben mitetzait. How's our Yiddish? Yes. Medarf leben mitetzait. We have to live with the times. That's what he said. And he walked out. It was like a mic drop. Before mic drops were a thing, it was a mic drop. So everyone's wondering, like, <laughs> they have to understand. The Alter Rebbe was like a Hasidic master. You know, I would call him old school, but now he's old school. But probably then, I mean, it's like, you know, a very, very pious Hasidic rabbi who's saying now you have to live with the times. What does that mean? You have to like start assimilating, modernizing. What, is, what does that even mean? So it was the brother of the Alter Rebbe, known as the Maharil. That was just his acronym of his name. They used to go by acronyms back in the day, some people. Anyway, the Maharil explained that what his brother meant was not that we have to become like modern Russian citizens, but what it means is you have to live with the parashas hashavua, the Torah portion of the week. So it's not just that, yeah, every Saturday there's a Torah portion, a section read from the Torah. And, you know, it changes every week. I mean, that's true, but that's not the extent of it. Moreover, right, we're supposed to live the entire week with the theme and the messages of that Torah portion. So what I want to do today is go even beyond that, if I may humbly say. To draw together five things that are converging right now and speak to what I believe is the common theme and develop that hopefully today in the next time, amount of time that we have together. So theme number one is, of course, our text, Overcoming Folly. This is our Kabbalah and Coffee text, which we'll be studying. So theme one is, of course, the text that we're studying. Theme number two is this week's Torah portion, which is Ha'azinu. Ha'azinu is the great song of Torah, penned by Moses shortly before, well, on the last day of his life, which was the day of his death. And Ha'azinu, interestingly, is written in the Torah scroll not in a normal column, like solid block of text column. It's written, hard to describe this, maybe it's not hard to describe this. It's kind of like, okay, I'm going to hold up this copy for a second. So imagine this block of text over here, just like a, you know, a, a column that just goes down with some paragraph breaks in the Torah. But Hazinu, that's how every, you know, column by column by column in the Torah, Hazinu is written with two columns instead of one, with an indentation, with like an aisle in the middle, right? So imagine like, kind of like this, <laughs> this setup, right? <laughs> two tables with an aisle in the middle. So you have, right, two columns of text with an aisle in the middle. And basically it's written kind of like poetry. It, it's meant to, to look different than the standard narrative. This is now poetry. It's a song, it's a poem. So we're going to connect, hopefully, again, this is the ideal. This, our text, with the Torah portion of the week, Hazinu, which is the great song of the covenant. We're going to connect it with Yom Kippur, which is coming up this week. 
We're going to connect it with, hold on, what else we're going to connect it with? Connect it with, I had five things here, I even wrote them down for myself. Ah, our upcoming course on anti-Semitism, which is going to start next month. The upcoming JLI course called Outsmarting Anti-Semitism, which, by the way, if you haven't checked out, check it out and join us for that next month. And finally, the launch of NFL football, opening week of the NFL. Yes? We're going to tie all these themes together. Let's start with football. <laughs> we always have to start with football. That's the way it works. We start with football, and um, let's talk about what's going on. So I grew up in Pittsburgh as you guys know, because I've said that like so many times. I grew up in Pittsburgh, and because I grew up in Pittsburgh, and I'll just, this is not a diss against Pittsburgh. I love Pittsburgh, but I'm just saying, there's not a lot, I mean, there's a lot going on on some level, but on another level, there's not a lot going on. It's not like Manhattan, right? It's not like, so what do you have in Pittsburgh? Steelers. You got the Steelers, exactly. What else do you have? You have the incline. You ever go to Pittsburgh? It's like, what should we do? Go on the incline. What's the incline? This little car that takes you up and down Mount Washington overlooking downtown. It's beautiful. I've done it. I've told people you got to do it. But honestly, it's an incline. I mean, that's like, that's the big, that's the big deal. And the Steelers. You go on Sunday. I'm sorry for talking about sports right now, but it'll get back to Kabbalah. Don't worry. It's going to get back to something a little bit more meaningful in a second. But you go Sunday morning to the grocery store, which the local big deal is called Giant Eagle. No, they don't have a big eagle as a mascot. It's just called Giant Eagle for whatever reason. So Giant Eagle, grocery store, you go there. Everyone's in game day jerseys. I always think like just in case, you know, you're listening to the radio and like Roethlisberger goes down. It's like, I got the Roethlisberger jersey. I'll be there in 10 minutes. Just defense, you know. Anyway, here's the point. People are invested in sports to the point that when their team loses, they get upset. And when their team wins, they're happy. The definition of a fan, you know what a fan means? What's fan short for? Fanatic. Fanatic. So you say somebody's a fa football fan. It's not a fan. What do you mean a fan? Like, whew, it's hot. Fan is a fanatic. What's, what's the definition of fanatic, right? Someone who's a little obsessed. Right? A fanatic means someone who's a little overboard even, a little obsessed. So football, this is the Kabbalah football for a moment, the Kabbalah of being a fanatic. The whole point is that the performance of this collection of people that are wearing a similar jersey actually can affect your mood today, tomorrow, even perhaps the whole week. And when you break it down and you really like kind of dissect it, it seems a bit mashuga. Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, what these and people that are not sport that, that are non-sports fans will actually wonder, like, what's the what, what's going on? Like, you care what these guys do on the field that actually makes a difference? And if so, why? <laughs> like, what's like people talk in the possessive? Oh, we won last night. We won? We, Kimosabi? Like, we? Who's the we? <laughs> like, who's the, you were out there? I'm pretty sure you were right at home. Like, we won? Anyway, but it, what's the point? And you'll see, that you, I'm getting to a point here that's going to hopefully run through everything. The point is, the more invested you are, the more, in, the more you personalize the experience. And when it's personalized, then it's internalized. And when it's internalized, what happens affects you. In other words, 
You could say you could be unaffected by what happens, but that would mean that you're disconnected, right? Yes, if you're disconnected, then, 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 then it doesn't affect you. If you're connected though, it affects you, which means, and this is gonna be the truth in life that I'm trying to evoke today. The more connected you are with something, or of course, someone, what they do matters. That's the nature of relationships. The more connected you are, the more deeply connected you are. So the more everything, I'm gonna use the Hebrew word here, everything is nageya, everything affects, everything touches. It hurts, it feels good, or it hurts, right? It go either way. But that's when you care. That's when you're invested. If you're not invested, if you don't have a connection, then so what? So here's the thing. Yom Kippur is coming up this week. Wednesday night into Thursday. And tonight, by the way, I should mention, we have our high holiday boot camp. Yom Kippur edition, 7.30, in person. Jeff's place, right here, where we're, where we're doing this class, as well as online. And we're going to be speaking about the theme of tshuva, tshuva, the idea of return on Yom Kippur, and how it differentiates from Rosh Hashanah. Basically, thematic distinctions between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and it's going to be an incredible class. But one thing I want to point out, that's not going to be a contradiction, or, uh, or, or too, uh, too foreshadowing tonight's class, is the following. On Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, there are 10 times in the Machser, in the prayer book, over the 26 hours of Yom Kippur, there are 10 times that we take our hands, make a fist. I've, I've remarked, when a Jew makes a fist, it's never at someone else, it's always at one's own heart, right? It's always uh, for one's own um, introspection. So we make a fist, and we gently tap our chest. Ashamnu, Bagannu, Gazalnu. We have, um, Ashamnu, we have acted in a guilty fashion. I think Bagannu is perfidiously, which, whatever that means. Anyway, look up the translation. You need a, a dictionary for the translation sometimes. But anyway, the point is that we, we, we clap our chest, and we do this 10 times throughout the 26 hours. With the Ashamnus and the Achets, for this sin, for that sin, the whole laundry list. And it might sound like an exercise in Jewish guilt, like to the extreme. Like, oh my gosh, Jewish guilt, like you're so guilty, like you're standing there again and again. I did this wrong, I did that wrong, I did the other thing wrong. Will you forgive me? It's like, oi, gewald, it's like so, so detailed. But think about the alternative. Imagine if God said, you know what, do whatever you want. Think about that. Yeah? Imagine God said, sure. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's also so like, no, don't say sure, yeah. Right. Imagine God says, yeah, whatever you want. Yeah, don't worry about it. You're good. Sure. It's fine. Would that feel better? Right? You know what that means? That means what you and I do don't matter. Why, why, and why doesn't it matter? Because it's meaningless. So is that a better alternative? What's better of the two options? That God cares, what we do matters, and therefore there are consequences for ourselves, for God, for the universe, for our loved ones. In other words, that this actually matters, or that none of this matters, do whatever you want, and, and no, no consequences, no this, no that, no the other. In other words, the fact that we stand in Yom Kippur, here's my point, the fact that we stand in Yom Kippur, and we actually do stand by the confessional prayers, the fact that we stand in Yom Kippur, and we say, I did this, I did that, I did the other. It indicates our belief 
that we're in a relationship with God, that our actions do matter. I think one thing that we've learned over the past 18 months is that actions matter. Actions really matter, right? What we do, what we say, what we th- everything, it, it really matters. And there's no such thing as it doesn't matter. And it doesn't just matter for us. It matters for everybody. It matters across the board. So what's the point? The point is like this. When it comes to football, when you're disconnected, so then you don't care. If you're connected, you care. When it comes to our relationship with God, if we're disconnected, if we would, have, if we would be disconnected, so then who cares? When we're connected, it matters. Yom Kippur is the ultimate declaration. The fact that we get up there in synagogue and we say, I did this wrong, I did that wrong, and, and this year it's going to be better, etc. The fact that we go through that process is, is literally built on the foundation of the belief. It's not only the belief, the faith, the trust, the knowledge, the, the 100% certainty that what we do makes a difference for better or for worse. That's why we show up. Otherwise, think about a school example. should never be like this, but imagine, imagine in a school there's the troublemaker. I don't even like saying this. Like, why should there be a troublemaker? But let's just say, maybe back in the day there used to be like the, the, the troublemaker. And what's the definition of the troublemaker? Everyone knows that this is the troublemaker, right? So what, you're going to get the troublemaker in trouble every time? It's not worth it, right? So... This one, this, this, this kid will do whatever he wants, right? And that's it. The troublemaker, labeled, whatever. That is the ultimate, it's the ultimate um, statement of we've given up on you, right? When there are no consequences, the sta- the, what's being re- the message that's being relayed is we actually don't care about you. We've given up on you, Right? You do whatever you want. Everyone else has rules. You have no rules. We've given up. Again, I'm not, I'm not giving any specific. I'm just using these, these as anecdotal um, um, examples to, to bring out this point. The deeper the connection, the more it matters. Right? When you love someone, what they do matters. When, when you have no connection, so whatever. <laughs> they did something. What do I care? But when you're in a relationship with them, it matters because you're invested. It's like the Kabbalah of the doghouse, right? It's actually a good thing. Why is it a good thing? Because it means that you're in a relationship. Because if you wouldn't be in a relationship, you can do whatever you want, and, and that's it. Weiter gefahren. I don't know why I'm into you this today. And you move on. But because you're in a relationship, so then it, it, it matters. So now I want to talk about Jewish history for a moment. And this, is, this ties into the anti-Semitism course. So just a, a little bit about that. Um, I think everyone here knows about the JLI courses. They're usually six-week courses. This is the first time we're doing a four-week JLI course starting a few weeks after the holidays conclude. Um, October, well, three weeks or so, October 26th and October 28th. It's called Outsmarting Anti-Semitism. And the premise is you can't outrun it because it's been around for a while. Let's try to outsmart it. 
and it goes into the, the causes of anti-Semitism, the psychology of, of anti-Semitism, etc. But one of the ideas that are expressed in the first lesson, it's not really the, the point of the first lesson, but it's something that as I was like kind of going over the material, something that's, that, that stood out to me. You know, Jews have been, Jews have been, um, have encountered challenges seemingly throughout our entire history. Now, that's not to say that we haven't had our amazing moments. There's been a lot of good. Sometimes I feel like anti-Semitism becomes like the, this, this, this all-encompassing truth about Judaism, and we forget the, the positive stuff. So we have to keep things in perspective, and that means you know, perspective is when you have both eyes open, so you see the good and the not so good. So we have to have a, a balanced perspective. But here's the point. You look at Jewish history, and there's been a lot of challenges. And where, where do the challenges come from? And, and, and you'll hear what I mean in a second. Where do they come from? Where's the first time that we encounter mention of the challenges? The answer is in the Torah, in these Torah portions, and in this week's Torah portion, Hazina. It's the song. And if you read it, it's a little bit frightening. Because the song says that Moses calls upon heaven and earth as witnesses. Why heaven and earth? Because they're going to be around in a few thousand years. Same planets, the same earth, the same mountains are going to be around. The people will be gone, right? The animals will be gone. The individual you know, beings will be gone, but not the heaven and earth. They're going to be around. So Moses calls upon them as witnesses and says, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go into Israel, and things are going to be good, and it's going to be amazing, and you're going to be flying high, and then you're going to become complacent and arrogant and whatever it is, you're going to go in a different direction, right? Disconnect from your purpose and then the negative stuff is going to follow. This problem and that problem and persecution and exile and all this stuff. And it's literally the final, literally, it's one, one of the final words that Moses says to the Jewish people. Now, ultimately, it ends on a positive note where the prediction is, the prophecy is that we're going to turn it around and God will re-embrace us and all that stuff. So it ends on a good note. So that's the good news. But the question is, why all of the drama? Like, why does it have to be bad and challenging and suffering? And again, when you look at it from a spiritual perspective, from a Torah perspective, it literally has predicted Jewish history, the arc of Jewish history. Question is why? And so I have on my phone... I have pulled up the verse that I believe captures the message. It's um, one, oh no, it's in the second reading, whatever. It's verse 9, in case you want to know. Deuteronomy chapter 32, Lev, Lamed Bet, the heart of Deuteronomy, chapter 32. It's verse number 9. It says, because the Lord's portion is his people Jacob, the lot of his inheritance. Ki Hashem Amo. God's portion is his people. Yaakov, Hevel, Nachalato. Jacob is... Yaakov, Hevel, Jacob, the lot of his inheritance. Okay. Hevel could mean... Hevel, lot. I don't know. Hevel means rope. And the mystics say, why does it say Yaakov, Hevel, Nachalato? Jacob, the rope is in his inheritance. What's a rope? So imagine you have a rope. Yeah, I'm holding the rope, Sindri, and imagine you're holding the other end of the rope. Yeah, we have there's a rope between us. 
What happens when I pull the rope? If you're holding on to it. What happens when I pull the rope? You come closer. What happens when you pull the rope? I get closer. But what's the point? The point is when you're holding on to the same rope, you're not unaffected by what the other one does. Right? What the other one does, you feel. What each party does, the other one feels. And so this is, to me, again, the way I want to frame this. This is the reason why. This is the reason why. There's this idea that when things, when we're not acting the way we should, then it's not going to be good. Why? It's not the doom and gloom and punishment. It's not about punishment. It's about a relationship. When you're plugged into the, because it matters, it matters. There's so many different parallels that we could come up with. But like, again, over the last 18 months, I think we've all come to realize that, what, that everyone matters for everyone else. And there's no such action that is just isolated. My action. Everyone's actions are connected. The message in this week's Torah portion, Hazinu, is that God cares about you and God is invested in you to the point that what you do matters. Love, the core of love is vulnerability. It means I'm taking my heart and opening it to someone else, which means that they have access, which means if they do good, it feels good. If they don't do good to me or whatever, then it feels really bad. And that happens when I open my heart to the other person. And it's easier to say, I'm not going to open my heart. You know what? I'm going to close off and I'm going to live my own life. I'm going to be, you know, my own thing. And I'm not going to let anything affect me. And so if you do this, great. If you don't do this, great. I don't care. It's not, it's not, it doesn't affect me. But God takes a different approach. Yaakov, Hevel, Nachalotu, the Swiss Torah portion says. Jacob, the rope is his inheritance. Which means, I picture like a tug of war, right? Each, but in a good way, right? That, that what we do affects the other. In this case, us and God. And so God says, the ultimate sign. So here's the twist on the trauma. Because I wrote in the email, it's like the soul of Jewish trauma. I started off, you should know, I, the, the, the first, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about my, uh, the Kabbalah and coffee email that I sent last night. I originally had written in the, in the subject, the blessing of Jewish trauma, but I figured that might be too traumatic to write the blessing of Jewish trauma, so I changed it to the soul of Jewish trauma, right? Because blessing, I thought, would be, whoa, blessing and trauma, too radical. But honestly, that's what this is. What's the blessing in Jewish trauma? It means that God cares about us. If God didn't care, then it wouldn't be a problem. Sorry, let me explain what it means. It wouldn't be a problem. Then we could do whatever we wanted, and it wouldn't affect anything, and there would be no tsaras, and that's it. The fact that, it's, that, that, it's, that there are consequences means, again, you might say this is a twist and this is a whatever, but it's, it's what it says. is because the reason why there are consequences is because God cares. God chose to care about us. If God didn't care, God would say, do whatever you want. That's it. The worst thing to hear as a kid from a parent is when the parent says, you know what? Just do whatever you want. It's like, uh-oh. Uh-oh, I think I went too far now. I think I pushed one more button <laughs> beyond what I should have pushed because I don't want to be cut out. That means you don't care what I do. 
Freedom? I didn't want that kind of freedom. Right? I want to know that what I do affects you. I want to see you get upset. Almost. Because then I know you care. Then I know you love me. And what? No child ever pushed a boundary in order to feel the love? 100%. 100%. That's exactly what it is. Why do kids push boundaries? Why do kids act out? Because they want to know that they're loved. They want to know that they, they affect the parent. So if the parent responds by saying, you know what? You're out. Forget it. That's like the whole, and we do this in relationships also, right? We push, we push, and we want to know, and it should, we shouldn't play games. Obviously, this is not, I'm not advocating, you know, necessarily as a, as a healthy framework of a relationship, but nonetheless, this is something that happens in relationships where, you know, whatever, for whatever reason, there's, there's a little push, and you just want to know that the other one is feeling it. In other words, the other one's like with you in this, in this relationship. Okay, let me check in. Does this make sense? Any of this make sense? Okay, so the common thread here is when there's investment, I don't think investment is, is strong enough, when there is, um, not investment, when you care, you care. It affects you. If you don't care, then you don't care. But when you care, it affects you. It hurts or it feels good, either way. So again, the, 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 the five pieces that I think are, that in my head are connecting. So, well, the fifth is our text, which we didn't jump into yet, but we'll get, we'll, that will be the last as we read it. Um, but again, number one, football, because we start with football. Number one, football, if you're a fan, you care. You could choose not to be a fan, but then that means that you're disconnected. If you're a fan, you care. When it comes to, um, when it comes to, what was the other thing? This week's Torah portion, Hazinu, Moses says, you matter to God. You matter to God so much that what you do will have a consequence. And if you don't behave, it's not going to be good. Is that a punishment? Is that scary? Is that negative? To me, it's love. To me, it's love. Imagine you tell someone before they get married, you know, marriage is a big deal. And committing to someone is a very big deal. And, and that means that, that they're being vulnerable to you. They're opening their heart to you. And what you do affects them in a very, very real way. Is that a punishment? Is that a punishment? Number one is true. But number two, there's love there. Because there's love. Because there's love, there, there are consequences. In other words, the actions hurt the other. They shouldn't. But if they're hurtful actions, they hurt the other. I'll give you another example. This actually is, an, is an, an analogy that Rashi brings. I forget which verse, I forget which part of the Torah, but Rashi brings this somewhere in his commentary on the, on the Torah. He says, imagine there are two patients that are sick. And the doctor goes into one of them and says to one of them, okay, so you're sick, so you need to eat this, and you need to do that, and this. It gives them a whole regimen, and then you'll get better. Doctor goes into the next one. Imagine, like, next to each other, beds next to each other. Next one says, do whatever you want. <laughs> you know what that means? What do you think that means? Okay. Yeah, it means you're a goner, right? That means, like, okay, like, do whatever you want, because there's nothing to talk about. So when there's nothing to talk about, right? So then, no consequences, doesn't, and then it's meaningless. But when there's something to talk about, then, then it matters. So again, football, if you're invested, it, it, it matters. Relationships, invested, it matters. 
between us and God. Hazinu. Moses says, what you do matters to God, to you, to the world. It matters. It makes a difference because there's a real relationship. What were the other pieces? Again, I'm just reminding myself. Torah portion of the week. Yo, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, we stand up and say, we did this, we did that, we did the other. Why? Because it matters. Okay. So, this hopefully will give a little perspective on chapter 10 of our text. Chapter 10, we started last week, I believe. Yeah, we started last week. Maybe we started a few weeks ago. We're up to the third chapter of, chapter, of, of Discourse 10. And if you have a book, it's on page 162. I'm going to pull it up on the screen as well. Um, give me a moment. 162. Um, and by the way, for the copies, I stapled it on the right side. But it's kind of cool because now it's like a Hebrew, a Hebrew text, right? It gives you that, it gives you that Hebrew feeling. Um, and by the way, I think like just to circle back a little bit um, to kind of the time of year that we're in. I know I spoke about Yom Kippur, but in general, as we start a new year, I think the overarching theme is how do we strengthen our relationship with God? And obviously it's about the positive things. But the other piece of it is knowing that because we're in a relationship we have that, we have that, I don't want to say power, but we have that effect, if you will, on God, on the universe, and on others. One other thing regarding Yom Kippur, which is very important to mention, it's not just about, because I want to just clarify something I said before. Yom Kippur is not just about standing in synagogue and saying, I did this wrong, I did that wrong, I did the other wrong. If we hurt someone else, it doesn't help to go to God. You got to go to the other person. This is a, this is a, a classic teaching of halach of Jewish law. It's in the Mishnah, the Talmud discussed it, it's in the Code of Jewish Law. Yom Kippur does not help. Yom Kippur does not magically wipe away the grievances or whatever, the, the, the issues that we might have, the harm that we might have done to someone else. For that, we have to go to the party. I've given a course before called, one of the JLI courses called Living with Integrity, and one of the classes there was focused on forgiveness. And I, I mentioned, I referenced the, um, the Sunflower by Simon Wiesenthal. It's a book in which he recounts the story that happened with him in a concentration camp. You know, Simon Wiesenthal, the famous Nazi hunter, he was also a survivor. And he said that he was once called in to a, to a dying Nazi's deathbed. And the Nazi said, I was involved in a massacre in Yepipetrovsk, and I feel terribly guilty. I'm dying, and I want to ask for forgiveness. And Simon Wiesenthal was very um, caught off guard and just overwhelmed by a lot of different thoughts. And ultimately, he just walked out of the room. He, just, he, didn't, he didn't say or do anything. And for the rest of his life, he thought about that. What, 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 what was the right thing to do? Should he have said, absolutely not? Should he have said, yes? Should he have walked out like he did? Like, what's the right response? So he put it to leading scholars, philosophers, religious leaders. You may be familiar with the book. It's called The Sunflower. And um, Deborah Lipstadt. Our own, our own, our local, you know, incredible Deborah Lipstadt. 
she weighs in on it in the book, 53 essays on this question. A dying, it's literally on the cover of the book. A dying Nazi calls you in to ask for forgiveness. Do you forgive them? You, do you forgive them? Um, and Deborah Lipstadt writes that according to Judaism, absolutely not. <laughs> Why not? Because um, in Judaism, only the one that got hurt can forgive. How can you forgive for someone else? How can Simon Wiesenthal forgive for all the people? What? This, it's, as she writes, it's not some sort of generalized amorphous thing called forgiveness. Like, generally, like, we're going to forgive you on behalf of the Jewish people. Who am I to forgive? If you hurt Yankel, right? Yankels are always are like, you know, anonymous person. You got to go to Yankel. And if people are, are no longer alive, you have to go to the cemeteries, etc. You have to figure out another way. But the point is on Yom Kippur, it's not enough to go to God because God can't forgive for Yankel. You hurt Yankel, you got to go to Yankel. The idea is repairing the relationship. So the theme today is all about relationships. When there's a relationship, that's a beautiful thing. It's a double-edged sword. When it's good, it's good. When, it's n when it hurts, it hurts. In other words, when it feels good, it feels good. When it hurts, it hurts. But the pain is a sign of life and connection, and that's really my, the key idea. The blessing, not the blessing, well, the, the soul of, tra of Jewish trauma is that the trauma itself, in the history of Judaism, the history of our people, the trauma of our people, which according to this week's Torah portion, is, be is, is related to our, I'm not blaming a victim here, but I'm just saying it's related to how we are in the world. So, so that means that our actions make a difference, our actions matter. Let's take a look at chapter 3, which really spells this out, and I think you'll see why, I'm, why I did this introduction today, because it really is on theme to, uh, to this week's reading. Um, again, if you have the booklets, open it up please to 162, 163, and I will also share my screen so that we can all follow together online. Okay, chapter 3, here we go. For this reason, Israel suffer exile subservience, and humiliation. Okay, that's a lot of <laughs> adjectives there. It's a lot of harsh adjectives. Um, in the Hebrew, I was looking at it uh, yesterday. It's nesunim uh, begalos. That means, yeah, exile. Umuchnaim umushpalim. Okay, um, subservience and humiliation. It's a little bit strong in the English, but nonetheless, it means that it hasn't always been great for the Jewish people. And he says, he says, based on classic Jewish understanding, again, not, not any specific suffering, not any specific individual, but in general, this is caused by transgressions. When, and this is talking about historically, when they, when the Jewish people fulfilled the will of God performing Torah and mitzvot, as in the days of the Beit HaMikdash, they were on an unusually high plane, this is now 164, and enjoyed a generous beneficence in the material sense, each man under his vine, and each under his fig tree. What that means is that when times were good, not sorry, not when times were good, when the Jewish people were doing their thing, when things were firing, when we were aligned with God, when we were aligned with our truth, our mission, our purpose, our spirituality, then things were good, not only spiritually, but also physically. And that's what he's saying over here, again, on, this, on the bridge between 162 and 164, is it wasn't just good spiritually. When they were aligned spiritually, there was an unusually high degree of physical blessing that manifested in a very literal material way. And he quotes the verse from Kings. Each man, well, it's drawn, it's inspired by a, a, a verse from the book of Kings. Ish 
tachat. What's the Hebrew? Ish tachat gafno ve'ish tachat te'enato. Each one had their own um, vine, their own, their own grape vine, and each one had their own fig tree. What that means is everyone was set up. In Atlanta, we would say each one had their peach tree and each one had their, had their this, that, the other. Okay. So that's when it was good. Let's continue inside on 164. What happens when it's not so good? In exile, right, which we've been in for a little while now, in exile, they, the Jewish people, are denied all material good. Again, denied all material good, a little bit uh, extreme over there, but there's challenges materially, physically, and are exceedingly oppressed and degraded due to their sins as all the, as all the exhortations of the prophets stress. In other words, when you look at the prophets, and it, it begins from Moses in this week's Torah portion, Hazinu and, and other Torah portions, it says when you do, when you follow what Hashem wants, it's going to be good, and when not, it's, uh, it may not be so good. So again, I, I, I feel very uncomfortable blaming, you know, saying, oh, this happened because of this, that happened, that. So the, I'm not doing anything. I'm just reading the text that's quoting from the prophets. And that's, that's classic Jewish understanding that there is an association between the times of the temple and our positive behavior and then being essentially exiled, the temple being destroyed, and the diaspora based on not, uh, us not doing what we needed to do. So he's now jumping into this question because we've explained in previous sessions that there is a realm called Makif, which is like this encompassing light where, um, where, where the actions of mortal beings or the actions and, and, and um, deservedness don't play a role into determining who can access that allotment of spiritual light and energy. So when you go through the system, so the system is such that you kind of have to show your credentials. You want, you want to take? Okay, you have to show your receipt. Like, did you, did you deserve it? Did you earn it? But then there's another allocation where it's called, so that's called the level of um, light and vessel or panemiot or whatever, like the, uh, uh, an internal way where it's all based on, based on performance and based on deservedness. But then there's another allocation of divine energy that's just freely available in this makif level. And that's how he explained, that's how the wicked prosper and that's how evil in general gets its energy because the question is how does evil even exist? You know, how it's not deserving. And the answer is there's a realm that's beyond light and darkness, good and bad, where anyone and anything can take from. So the question is, so why can't we take from there and, and, and live well? And the answer is, that's the question he asked right here at 164. So the question arises, why can they, meaning the Jewish people, not receive back inside from the makif where sin and transgression are not of any account, as we have learned? In other words, if there's this level of makif, makif means this encompassing light or this encompassing dimension where it's all available and all good and, you know, you deserve it, sure. You don't deserve it, sure, Right? As we said before, whatever you want, sure, do, do whatever you want. It doesn't, it doesn't make a difference. Like, uh-oh. But it, on this level, it doesn't make a difference. So why can't we take from there? And he answers, he explains, because we have too much of a connection that our actions don't matter. Are you with me on this? I'll say that again. So if there's a realm, theoretically, <clears throat> where evil can get from, so why can't we get from there also? 
When I say evil, I don't mean any specific person. I mean the concept of evil existing in the world. The fact that there, there's, there are options of evil means that that has to exist. So how does it exist? It gets from this supernal level makif that, uh, that, that's all available and all nurturing. doesn't matter if it's deserved or not deserved. It's ready to go. So why can't we get from there? So after the temple is destroyed, so why not then pull from that level and we're good to go? And the answer is because we're too close in a relationship with God to just get from that, from that level where it was that level is reserved for those that don't have a relationship. For evil, right, if you don't have a relationship, then it doesn't matter. It's like, it's like the kid in the class, again, using this, I think, hopefully antiquated example of the troublemaker in school that like, no one at this point can do whatever they want. So it's like the kid in the class that's trying to do good but messes up and gets put in detention. It's like, I did one thing, you know, and I get detention, and this kid does whatever they want. And the answer is, you want to be that kid? I don't think you want to be that kid, right? It's a good thing that your actions matter. Are you with me? So it's like the blessing of detention. It means that you're in a different system. It means that you're in a system where it's, it's, it's important what you're doing. And so that's what he's saying over here. Because we have this connection with God, God's not going to transfer us over to the I don't care anyway slot. And, and we wouldn't want that. Wait, we would want that to be transferred to the yeah, do whatever you want, it doesn't matter? Like, oh no, that's, that's terrible. We want to be almost in this, what we do matters, and therefore it's either going to be good or maybe not so good, but we know that we're in this relationship. When we pull the rope one way, it's going to have this effect for, for positive over negative. Does that make sense? Yes? Yes? Okay. Hold on. Let me check in. Um, yes? Thumbs up if that makes sense? We, is it making sense? Okay. Good. All right. Perfect. So that's what he explains over here. And, and I, I did a lot. I, I think I always do a bit of an intro, but I just wanted to make sure that when we're reading this, it doesn't sound, number one, like completely nonsensical, but also, number two, like super harsh. Because I, I don't think it's actually harsh. It's like, again, imagine a relationship. A loving, forget the kid in the school, imagine a relationship. So it could be a point in the relationship where one party would say to the other, I don't care. I don't care what you do. I don't care when you show up. I don't care if you're here. I don't care if you're not here. Do whatever you want. Is that a good thing? It's like, yay! It's like, whoa! That means, that means we're... Uh, no accountability, but that means that, that it's done. The relationship is done. So imagine somebody who says, I don't understand. Like, in my relationship, if I'm home five minutes late, if I'm home from work five minutes late, you know, it's a problem. The other one, whatever. And so it's like, well, one second, one second. There's, there's, which one would you rather be in? One where, where it doesn't matter at all because they don't care about you anymore? Or one where they actually care about you? It's a different, it's a different, it's a different, it's a, it's, it's a different realm. It's a different ballpark. So again, the point of this is that to answer the question, well, why is it that when the Jewish people, so we, we went into Israel, right? We had a temple or two, and then we were exiled. We say in the prayers because of our sins, we were exiled from our land. So why isn't it that when we messed up, why can't we now siphon from this, this makif, this like anything goes and it's all available realm? And the answer is because God cares too much about you to just say, I don't care anymore. God cares. God, 
Here's the point. God's not giving up on the relationship. Maybe that's the clearest way that I can say it. God is not giving up on the relationship and says, I still care. I still care about you. And it's manifested, again, through the negative, which is crazy. But that's the point. It's like the negative consequences bring out how much God cares. If God didn't care, no negative consequences. Do whatever you want. Take from Makif. The warehouse is open. Take. Just don't see me. Just go take. Whatever you want. All access. But it's not like that. And the reason that it's not like that is because God does care. And God says, I care what you do, and it affects me, and then it affects you when it affects me, because we're in this together. Let's go back inside. I'm going to pull up the screen again. Um, I'm reading on the screen the same text that we have here in person and in the book. It's all the same text. Again, page 164, um, third paragraph now, where it says the reason is. Okay, here we go. The reason is. Now, what, what, the reason for what? The reason why we can't just take from Makif where evil takes from. Like, why not? Let's just go to Makif. The reason is that Israel are essentially of an inner nature. And the bestowal of their vitality is from an inner illumination through performing Torah mitzvot. What does that mean of an inner nature? There's a relationship. That's what it means. There's a relationship. So what? You, you're suggesting that, 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 that because we messed up, so now we should be on this other track, this alternative track, where we can just get from Makif? You know what that means? That means that God has then given up on us. We don't even want that. We push boundaries because we want to know that we've affected the other. No one actually wants to be so cut out that they don't actually matter. That doesn't feel good ultimately. You might think that you want that, but no one actually wants that. So what he's saying here is that the relationship is too deep and too essential to just be written off like that and just relegated to, to the realm of where, you know, where evil gets. Yeah, just, just go over there. It is written, back inside. It is written, he quotes now from Leviticus. It's written in the Torah, if you go in my statutes, then I, will give, then I shall give you rains, sorry, I shall give your rains in their season and the earth will give its crops. It says in Leviticus basically that when we do what we need to do, then the earth itself, nature itself will respond. The rain is going to fall, the land is going to, the earth is going to produce growth, everything's going to work out if we're doing what we need to be doing. Here we go, all, which means, in, the, in this, underst this mystical understanding, according to Kabbalah, all the material assignments are dependent on Torah and mitzvot, which also bestow plenteous blessings. In other words, the material promises in the Torah and the blessings that we all want are dependent on the nature of the relationship. When the relationship between us and God is strong, then the blessings are strong. If the relationship is shall we say, compromised? It's going to be compromised. Again, the, I don't know of any better way to say this than in a human relationship, right? There's, there's a, the, a, a, being in a relationship is incredible. And there's incredible blessings of being in a relationship, right? On, on, on every single level. And the reality is that how we show up in a relationship affects the nature of that relationship. And it works obviously both ways. But how I show up in a relationship is going to affect the nature of the relationship, and, and, and ultimately how, not what I get from the relationship, but, but the experience of the relationship. So, so, so if I show up dedicated to the other, 
I mean, you know, humans are humans, so there's a little bit of an X factor there, but whatever. But ideally, if I show up, you know, the way I need to show up, it's going to be good. If I show up not the way I should show up, maybe a little bit different. So that's the point over here. When we show up to God as we should show up, the blessings follow. Let's continue. For the source of the inner light is the inwardness and essence of the infinite light. And that's what he says. The reason why we're in this relationship is because there's this core connection on an, on an essential level, right, with God Almighty. There can at times be the illuminating revelation of an exceptional superior light from the essence of the infinite light into Seder Hishashua. What that means is sometimes... Think how, how we can phrase this. Okay. Just, I don't want to miss some nuance over here that he's saying. Imagine a child in a relationship with their parents. And the child can feel like their parent is a police person, a policeman or policewoman, right? Why? Because the parent says, do this, don't do that, right? And it can seem sometimes, even as a parent, that there's a lot of policing going on, right? It's like rules. And, 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 and there's rule giving and rule enforcing. It's like, do this, don't do that. It's like, enough with the rules already. What's the point of the rules, as we've said today? The point of the rules is because I love you. Because I love you and I care about you, so then what you do matters. I care about your well-being, so I want you to go in a healthy way. I don't want you to go in an unhealthy way. And so therefore, I'm, telling, I'm, I'm trying to guide you what's good, what's not. So what that means is what I'm trying to say is like this. That the way, the, the way it's manifest on the ground is like very technical. Do this, don't do that. But where does it come from? The deepest love that's obviously beyond all the rules. In other words, the love is the love that would exist even if the rules are broken. Right? That's the core love that exists between parent and child. But because the parent has such a deep love so the, for the child, so the parent will want to guide the child, here's a healthy way to go, here's an unhealthy way to go, now choose the right way to go, and, and, and if not, I want to correct you, and there's going to be a consequence so that you get back to a good way. So again, on the ground, it could feel very technical. Very like, I do this, I do that, eh, this happens, that happens. That's on the ground. But that's a manifestation of a core connection that is essential and deep and really bigger than any of the do's and don'ts. And I hope that makes sense. And it ties into what I said before. It's really the same thing, just I'm going a, a little bit more nuanced because, again, if, if, God forbid, the parent would decide at any moment, again, God forbid, I no longer have that love for my, ch God forbid, I can't even say it, right? I no longer have that love, right? Like, I don't care. Then the rules automatically fall away. Then there are no rules anymore. It's like, I don't care what you do. So the rules, which feel very technical on the, on the, on the ground, right? The rules on the ground, which feel very technical, are really but a manifestation of this core love and this desire for the well-being of the child. Does that make sense? Because I love on a deep level, therefore all this technicality exists. If I didn't love on a deep level, then no technicalities. What he's saying over here is that sometimes through the technicalities of the rules, you can sense the love. Sometimes all you sense are the rules as the kid. Sometimes you're like, you know what parenting is? You know what my parent is? A police uh, policeman. Yeah, just this rule, that rule. 
hopefully kids don't, don't say this, but it could feel like that sometimes. I have to do this, I have to wake up this time, go to school, do my homework, eat this, um, I can't do that, I can't, uh, whatever it is, like the do, do's and don'ts. It can feel very technical. But sometimes, hopefully more, more often than not, the child recognizes that all of the rules are merely an outcome of the core love that exists. Because if the parent didn't care, there wouldn't be any rules. And that would be great, right? No, it would be horrible. It would be the worst. Remember Home Alone? Remember that movie? You guys remember? I was thinking of The Chosen, where the father raises the one child in silence. But the love is there. I mean, it is based on an incredible, right. difficult to understand right. kind of love. That right. finally cracks open and is expressed. But, right. Um, yeah. I was thinking on a much more mundane level <laughs> about Home Alone and Macaulay Culkin. Remember that movie? Where the kid gets left behind and the parents realize and they chase, but meanwhile the kid like defends the home and everything. So sure, it feels great in the beginning, like, wow, all my siblings that annoy me, my parents that give me rules, they're all gone, I have this whole house. Freedom. But imagine the parents didn't come back. Imagine if they really did, God forbid, just abandon that kid. That would feel good. That would be the worst. You think you want freedom, but really you want a relationship. And the rules are hard. No one's going to say the rules aren't hard. Rules are hard. It's difficult. We have a natural desire for freedom and expression, etc. But at the end of the day, what we crave more than that is relationship. So what he's saying here, and I'm going to get back to the text, but it's important. I, I, this is you, you probably know me by now, with uh, with, with through, through through classes and everything. My, my goal is to take language that might be encoded, Kabbalistic language that might be sounding one thing, but to hopefully try to speak in, in our language and make it understandable. What he's saying over here is that the challenges of our history are due to the fact that we're in a relationship. And God is not ready to give up on us and to cut that love and say, you know what? You're on your, you're out, do whatever you want. There's a warehouse in the back. You, you don't have to, sh don't show up here for dinner anymore. You know, it's like, it's like you come home and again, God, I'm just speaking stereotypes, not, not actual things, right? But like you come home and the dinner is cold. Why? Because they're upset at you. It's better to have cold dinner, right? That means they still care, right? Then being like, well, whatever you want. I, I'm not giving a, I don't think that was it's a coherent example, but nonetheless. It started off in my head as coherent, but I don't think it came out as coherent. The point is, God does not cut us loose. God is not letting us go. The fact that it's sometimes difficult is an indication that it still matters what we do. And this is exactly what he's saying over here in the text. Again, you just have to read through the language here a little bit. Um, the rules, do this, it'll be good. Do that, it won't be good. That's all on the ground reflects our inner relationship with God, but it, it, at the source, it's because of God's like, overwhelming, essential, infinite love for us that's not ready to overlook it 
our behavior for our benefit. It's like the parent's not ready to overlook the, 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 the negative behavior of the child for the child's benefit. Because you want your child to grow up to be a mensch. So if you overlook that behavior constantly, what's going to happen? The child's not going to be a mensch. That's not love. That's not love. So there are consequences. Why? Because of love. Because love. Not because not love. If, there, if I didn't care about my child, if, I, if one did not care about their child, yeah, no rules, no consequences, no nothing. I don't care. Whatever they turn out, they turn out. But because you care, so you have rules. And because you care, there are consequences. So when it's good, it's good. When it's not good, you correct. And the child will feel that, 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 that that's, a, that's a pain point because there's a correction. It is what it is. My child, one of my children now has braces. And what's braces? What, torture? It kind of does look like that, I will say. There's like a thing here, a thing there. It's complicated. It does look like an ancient form of like teeth torture, but it's about correction. So the question is, is that a sign of no love or love? I would have to ask Shia. We'd have to bring him here and ask him, do you feel in this experience that we care about you or don't care about you? I think he would say care. I think he knows what, what it's about. Right? The pain is correction. It's for his health. It's for his benefit. Right? He needs certain things done for his own, his own health. So what's the point? On the ground, it looks one way. But that's just the surface manifestation of what's really under the hood. And what's really under the hood is this powerful love. And what he says over here now is that sometimes the powerful love leaks out into the expression on the ground where the child realizes, oh, that's why all this is going on, because they love me. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to let them know once in a while, all the time, that the reason for all this stuff is because it's coming from love. And that's what he says over here. Um, there cannot be... Okay, th- we're now in the middle of that third paragraph. Like, literally, I'm going to go back a little bit. Where he, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven lines into that third paragraph, where it says, for the source, for the source of the inner light. And again, this is mystical language, but I just want to speak in, in, in our uh, contemporary language. The source of the rules, the do's and don'ts, the consequences, what seems to be very technical on the ground, the source of that is the inwardness and essence of the infinite light, is the core love that's, that's deep inside, God. There cannot be times, sometimes, there can be the illuminating revelation of an exceptional superior light from the essence of the infinite light into Seder Shashal. What that means is sometimes that core love that drives the system <coughs> actually leaks through into the system where you can see it. In the day, and he gives an example. In the days of the temple of the Beit HaMikdash, there was more revelation of the transcendent into Seder Shashal through the service of Israel, particularly the sacrificial service, which means that if you would walk into the temple, you would see not just rules, do's, and don'ts, but since things were actually rocking and rolling in a positive way, you could actually sense some of the miraculous. The Talmud says, the Mishnah says actually, it says that there were 10 miracles that happened every single day in the temple. You walked into the temple and like, it was, it was, it was like supernatural. It was amazing. And what that means is, you could sense the love. Inevitably, the material beneficence back inside, last line of that paragraph, inevitably the material beneficence was also generous but always from the internal. In other words, it's always based on the relationship because there's a relationship. Let's continue. When we speak of the inwardness of the infinite, in other words, when we speak of the love, the core love, which manifested, in the, which manifests itself in the rules, this is also where the pain and afflictions of Israel are felt. And I hope that line 
makes sense and resonates based on everything we've discussed, what that means is because we have that deep relationship, that's why sometimes it's not so good. It is written in all their afflictions. This is from Isaiah. In all their afflictions, he was afflicted. God is afflicted in our afflictions. By the way, over the next um, one, two, uh, three, three and a half paragraphs, almost at the end of this chapter, and that's where we're headed, he's going to talk about how God is as pained as we are when we have pain. And, 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 and I hope this makes sense. Because when a parent has to correct a child, the parent is in pain. And when the spouse or the one in the relationship, right, when, when there are consequences in the relationship, it hurts both sides. If the parent didn't care, it would never hurt the parent. The parent wouldn't care. There would be no consequences, and it wouldn't hurt the child. None of that would happen. The fact, starting from the, from the bottom up, the fact that there are consequences that the child feels means that the parent loves, which means that the parent felt pain when they saw the child go in another direction. Are you with me on this? All of it is connected. This is wild. You're about to encounter something absolutely wild, and it works. You'll see it in the Hebrew side better, but I'm going to do my best in the English side. The verse says, I'm going to say it in Hebrew. I'm going to say the Hebrew words. Bechol tsaratam lo tsar. Bechol means in all. Tsaratam, their pain, their suffering, or affliction. I'll just stick with the word that they translate, affliction. Bechol, like tsara, tsaras. Bechol tsaratam, in all of their tsaras, tsuras, in all of their afflictions, lo tsar. Lo, the Hebrew word lo, could be written two ways. Low with an aleph or low with a vav? Low with an aleph means no. Low with a vav means his. Bechal tzaratam. In all of their, meaning our pain, the Jewish people's pain, either low tzar, he does not have pain, or low tzar, he does have pain. Which one is it? So listen to this. In scripture, in Isaiah, it's written with the letter aleph, which seems to indicate that God does not have pain when we have pain. But the rabbis tell us, the sages tell us, when you read it, you read it with a vav, that God does have pain. Now, here's the spoiler alert. When you read it and you pronounce it, it sounds the same. So what do you mean? When it's written one way, you read it another way. You literally say it the same way. But what the sages mean is that you have to recognize that although Scripture can't, can't necessarily write black and white and say God feels pain, because that would create all sorts of uh, theological questions, maybe, that couldn't be answered like that. But the rabbis tell us that you should know what's the real experience. Lo with an aleph tsar. God does have pain. So, and you'll see it right here. Zohar comments. Zohar is, of course, the primary work of Kabbalah. Zohar comments, the scriptural version, the written version, is with an aleph, which means God was not afflicted. Lo tsar, lo tsar, no, no affliction. But the pronunciation is with a vav. He was afflicted. It works in the Hebrew. I'm, I'm trying in the English. For God, and, and why is this? For God is with Israel in their afflictions. The variation, he was not afflicted, refers to a most lofty place known as Attic. 
though that this place is beyond all afflictions and suffering, still to that exalted plane, the affliction of Israel attains. Oh, he adds another layer to this. He works now. Okay, let me just tell you what he just did at the last, the last line over there. He then added another wrinkle. He says, the Lotzar with an Aleph, he was not afflicted, refers to a place beyond our actions where God doesn't actually care. But it's in that place that God does care. In other words, in the place of God's transcendence where you would think that God is too big to care. Lotzar, Lotzar, he does care. And again, you can read this a thousand times and, and think it's a mystical concept and we're talking about attic and blah, blah, blah. And I, my hope my only hope today is that it makes sense and you understand it and you can relate to it, hopefully on a personal level, right? Whether as a parent, as a child, as a friend, as a, you know, in a relationship, whatever type of, everyone's in some sort of relationship. So in whatever relationship you are in or have been in, the bottom line here is, do you care or do you not care? Are you a fan? Are you not a fan? Not just a watch the game. Are you a fanatic or not a fanatic? If you're a fan, you feel it. Every, you go to a sports bar. There's some, um, what's the Steelers sports bar right here? Um, on Monroe and Piedmont. Smith's Old Bar. Yeah, it happens to be a, uh, a Steelers bar. How do I know this? <laughs> <laughs> I've been there with some members of our community that, have, uh, that are um, also from Pittsburgh. Some uh, very special people. Anyway, so, so, um, I'm thinking about a special bar and watching a Steelers game. Here's the point. Here's the point. When you're a fan, every play could be the highest of highs, the lowest of lows. The quarterback drops back to pass. Everyone's looking. The ball's in the air. Ah! And catches it or drops it. Catches it for the touchdown. Everyone explodes with joy. He drops it. Oh! That's it. It affects you. Why? Because you're invested. Did you have to be invested? I don't know. But you chose to be invested. You are invested. And because you're invested, it matters. And the message here is that God is invested. And you know what happens sometimes? What fans do when their team is not performing? They'll boo the players that they love. They'll boo them because they love them. If they didn't care about them, they wouldn't be spending hundreds of dollars on a game. They wouldn't be there in the stands. Because they care, it affects them. And when it's good, they cheer. When it's not good, it's the Bronx cheer. <laughs> when it's good, they cheer. When it's not good, it goes the other way. I've been to a Yankees game. Man, those, those fans are very colorful. I'll tell you that. I took, I took my, well, 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 one second. I once took my kids to a game. It was a Yankees game. We were in... New York for Passover. So it was an April, an April game, beginning of the season. I think that was my only game in, in, uh, in Yankee Stadium. And it was quite the experience. It's like there's, I've been in Boston, I've been to Fenway. Anyway, yeah, Donna, jump in. I mean, I appreciate your presentation. It gives us, you know, a new look at this. But for me, I mean, I think like people are people because for me, I would look at that as fair weather fans you know the guy dropped the ball okay but you know still show the love and the support and it's better next time but the thing is that I'm, i hear i hear that side but i'm gonna i'm gonna go back to this side the fact that you boo means that you really care 
means that you really love. Again, that's how that's that's today's twist. That's the big twist of today. The fact that you boo means that you care. If you didn't boo, it means you don't care. Means you caught the ball, sure. You didn't catch the ball, sure. We love you. In other words, when it's too unconditional, oh, one second. It, it's at the court's unconditional because you're still buying the tickets. You're buying season tickets next year also. So there's unconditional love. But again, what I'm saying is that within the unconditional, it manifests itself on the ground. See, that's the, that's, the, that's the duality of this conversation. Because the love is so deep and unconditional, it manifests itself in this kind of seemingly conditional experience where when it's good, it's good. When it's bad, it's bad. But all that is driven by the love. Anyway, to me, at least to me, it makes sense. But I, I understand what you're saying. Let's, let's do a bit of a, of a beeline because we have just about four or five minutes left. So let's do a quick run to the end of this chapter, which is going to talk about how God is affected like effect, we're not just affected by what we do, consequence-wise. God is affected by what we do. So again, lotsar, lotsar. God doesn't feel the pain. God does feel a pain. Kriyuksiv. It's called kriyuksiv. The way it's written, the way it's the way it's pronounced. Which in this case, ironically, it sounds the same. But from the place where God shouldn't feel anything, God does feel something. That's the depth of the love that He has for us, and the nature of the tug that we have of that rope on Him. When we pull it, He feels it, and it hurts. And then we also feel it. 166. The Talmud Chagiga on the verse in the hidden places. This is, again, page 166. Um, this is the last, last page, and we close it out. Talmud says on the verse from Jeremiah, in the hidden places does my soul weep for your pride. Now, hold on one second. Does my soul, my soul should be with a capital M because it's referring to God. In the hidden places... God, the prophet says, speaking for God, in the hidden places does my soul, God's soul, weep for your pride. So the Talmud says, that's the indented section. God has a place and hidden is its name. In Hebrew, it's mistarim. Mistarim, hidden. The place that God, the chamber that God has is called hidden. So it's a hidden chamber by definition. What does for your pride mean? What does it mean that God weeps for our, your, your pride? Rabbi Shmuel Bar Yitzhak said, for the pride of Israel that was removed from them. In other words, from the fall of Israel. They had it all. They had a temple. Uh, sovereignty, boom, exile, uh, suffering, pogroms, out of defaz, inquisitions, expulsions, etc. Is there weeping? So then the Talmud asks, is there weeping in reference to God? How could God cry? Does, Rav Papa does not Rav Papa declare that he knows of no melancholy? God, God doesn't get sad. There, so the Talmud says there's no contradiction. For one refers to the inner chambers and the other to the outer chambers. What does that mean? The outer chambers, God doesn't cry. But in the inner chambers, God cries. In other words, there's a level where God says, whatever, maybe. But on the deepest level, God feels it. Rashi explains, and this is from Rashi, Rashi explains on that Talmudic passage that in the inner chambers there is weeping, as in the verse in the hidden place, in the hidden places. Hence, specifically in the inner chambers, meaning the inwardness and essence of the infinite light, in other words, God's core essence, there is weeping, as it were, as it were, for the lost pride of Israel. This is because Israel related to inwardness, even in terms of the essence of the infinite light, for the inwardness of his desires, specifically for those who fulfill the mitzvot. And what that means without the Kabbalistic terminology is God cares about us. So God cares what we do on the ground. If God were to only care about us in a general way and say, oh, I love unconditionally, do whatever you want, it's not real love. That's not real love because real love means you care about the well-being of the other. So you want to see them go in a good way, like a parent and a child. That's why I keep on going back to that example. It's the best example that I can think of. Parent and a child. A parent wants the best for the child. So when the child is not doing what the parent knows is the best thing, so it, it hurts. 
So then there's an unconditional love also, but then there's also the sense of correction. Finally, final paragraph, for this reason, the anguished cry of Israel in their tribulations arouses profound mercies on their behalf. Remember, we have the other end of the rope, so we can also pull God in, in one way, and in a negative way, and in a positive way. When we call out to God with sincerity, that always awakens the mercies on, 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 on our behalf. As in the verse from Exodus, the people of Israel groaned because of their labor, and they cried out, thereby affecting the beginning of the redemption. The Torah says, the Torah is very um, precise to say that in the timeline of the Exodus, that there was various stages of, of e Egyptian um, uh, enslavement. And when it got to a certain point, it says the Jewish people called out and cried out. God heard it, and that's when God calls Moses in for the, uh, for the Exodus. So you could say, well, why did it take so long? I don't have an answer for that. But the point is um, that our cries do go, because of the relationship, it goes all the way to the, to the top. Also, they cried out to God in their, in their trials from Psalms. The point is that, what, that, that our cry to God has an effect. The stipulation, the condition is that the cry must come specifically from the depths of the heart. Then it attains and arouses the inwardness and essence of the blessed infinite light because our, the essence is connected to essence. So what's the moral of the story? At least for me, I'm sure you, you probably uh, already know what I'm going to say, but I'm going to say it again just to wrap this up. The moral of the story is that when you're in a relationship, when you're in a real relationship, it matters. What you do matters. What they do matters. And honestly, it's easier not to be in a relationship than to be in a relationship. What I mean is it's easier to say, I don't care, and I won't care, right, than to say, I do care. It would be easier for God. I'm just going to speak for God now for a second. Let me try that on. It would be, theoretically, who knows, right? It would be easier for God to say, do whatever you want. Everyone can get from Makif. The warehouse is there. It's open, unlocked. Do whatever you want. I'm doing my own thing. But then there's no relationship. Relationship means that I care about you. And if I care about you, I care what you do, I care how you treat me, I care how I treat you, everything changes. And the whole dynamic changes and shifts once there's, once there's care. So here's the deal. On Wednesday night and Thursday is Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur is a day of atonement when we stand before God and we say, I did this wrong, I did that wrong, I did the other wrong. And people think, what God is such a... You know, first of all, are we gluttons for punishment? We're like self... Um, you know, humbling ourselves, and it's like this whole thing, and does God really look with such a fine-tooth comb, with such a magnifying glass at us and our behavior, and it's not about anything else other than the fact that we know that we're in a relationship. And in relationship, there's accountability, we take responsibility, and we say, we didn't show up exactly as we should, we know that you care, we care about you, we know that you care about us, and we're pledging for a better year. And that's basically what it's about. Yom Kippur is nothing but a day of love. Not a day of, 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 it's not the negative. Take out the negative. And I'll end with this story. There was once, the Baal Shem Tov, was on tra the Baal Shem Tov traveled a lot. The, the, the founder of the Hasidic movement, he traveled a lot. That was his thing. He came to a community for Yom Kippur, shortly before Yom Kippur, in this time, the, between Russia and Yom Kippur. And the people were complaining to him about the chazan, about the cantor. What's the problem? The cantor, he had a great voice, but he sings the, the, the prayers on Yom Kippur, the ones that speak about uh, uh, repentance and atonement and everything, he sings with a happy tune. And it's, the wrong, it's the, wrong, the wrong energy. He's supposed to sing like depressed and everyone should cry. What's going on? So he says, okay, let me meet with him. He says to the cantor, is this true? He says, yeah. He says, what's your, what's your, what's your thought? What's the, wh why do you do this? He said, look, 
If the king hired me to clean the palace, would I not rejoice at the opportunity to clean the king's palace? I have the opportunity, Yom Kippur, to clean, to clean myself up. Should I not rejoice at that opportunity? It's a paradigm shift. It's a paradigm shift. How do we look at it? Negative, judgy, cruel, you know, blah, 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 all the negative stuff? No. It's a day to feel the love and to get, back, to get realigned. That's the entire energy of Yom Kippur. I want to wish everybody a Gemar Chatimatova. We should indeed be sealed. We've already been written for a good year, that's for sure. I'm confident about that. But we should be sealed. And it's not over till it's sealed, so we should be sealed for a good year, a year of blessing for ourselves, for our loved ones, for our community, for our communities, and for the world, because Lord knows that we need blessings of health and happiness and uh, all of our heart's desires for the good. Thank you very much for joining me this morning. Um, thank you to our online crew, to our in-person crew. Thank you guys for being here. And once again, just a quick announcement tonight, 7.30, High Holiday Boot Camp, all about the theme of Yom Kippur. All right, we'll open it up. Questions, comments? Hey, Mariana, good to see you. Hi, fantastic class. Thank you very thank, much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Shana Tova. Tova. All right, good. We'll see you guys. See you in a bit. Shavuot Tov. All right. Questions, comments.